think, Larry? Good morning, brethren. I want to thank you for an opportunity to participate in your fall gathering this year. The topic before us, the six personal offerings of Leviticus chapters 1 to 7, is what we'll be drawing upon this morning to establish lessons as to how we may emulate the messages taught and apply it to our own personal walk here in the 21st century as we ourselves attempt to produce a sweet-smelling savor offering unto Yahweh. The result of our efforts will, of course, all shake out at the Bema. The, the process of my thought, and those of you who know me, I've cycled in and out of the Law of Moses over the years. As, I was, uh, as a youngster, I would look at the mosaic scheme of things and push back and think, that's, that's just too intricate, and besides, it's a, it's a parenthesis in Israel's history. But um, as we get into it more and more, it's just such a wealth of information, type, countertype, allegorical information. It's, it's just an exciting study. The rabbit trail that I took in going here was in reflecting upon John chapter 19, verse 33, where we have the crucifixion account um, by John. And John is the disciple where it was said, but when they came to Jesus and thought, saw that he was dead already, they broke not his legs. Interesting thing, just to inject that. You know, it was the Roman custom to break the leg bones of the hapless victim with an iron bar, creating compound fractures, shooting the bones into vessels and flesh, and facilitating the bleeding out and dying of the hapless victim. Prophetically, Jesus was not to be battered in that manner. Then the next thought, I went to Matthew 5, verse 17, where Jesus says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but I am come to fulfill. So this then is where I would take the leg bone analogy and I would apply it to the law and the prophets, the two major pillars representing what is hinged and pinned the entire infrastructure of the Old Testament, and which here then represents the, if you will, leg bones of Christ that were not broken. So today we'll be considering aspects of the law, the study of the prophets, will be another topic. Um, for the Hebrews, you know, it was always a look forward when they participated in these altar sacrifices to a promised Messiah. And after 70 AD, the um, cessation of sacrifice and oblation as projected in uh, Daniel's 70 weeks prophecy came to an end. And so for Gentiles now, it's a look back, but now we still have a look forward because sacrifice and offering will be reinstigated in the kingdom age through the great Ezekiel's temple, and it behooves us to have our mind around these 
altar sacrifices because it will be a perpetual thing going on. Administered by the sons of Zadok, the Melchizedek order, and the mortal Levitical priesthood. Everything described there, you know, in Ezekiel 44. Now, these then are the six altar offerings. You'll notice I put the word personal in there because we're not talking about the canopy of national sacrifice and offering. We're talking about these personal offerings that any given worshiper could come and bring his offering before the priest as he felt needed. And, of course, some were mandatory. The sweet, three sweet-smelling savor offerings were voluntary. Interesting. The order that you see on the overhead is not necessarily the order you'll find from Leviticus 1 to 7. Most commentaries say that that would not be the order that a worshiper would follow per se. That will become more obvious as we get into this. But it stands to reason that one wants his sin or trespass covered before he would dare go or feels comfortable initiating a peace offering. This is how it is in our own personal prayer structure, is it not? We want to have our sins and trespasses addressed and off the table, if you will, before we go on with the rest of our prayers. So this will be the order that I'll be um, looking into things. Let's go to um, uh, Romans 12 for a minute. Uh, for just a second, I can always ask, have you ever regarded yourselves as a living sacrifice? Have you ever seen yourself burning on an altar all your sojourn? We need to kind of develop that mindset sometimes. Um, I think by looking into these six offerings, my desire is to heighten our personal worship and awareness of things. You know, when you learn something rather technical, whether it's a um, golf swing or it's a new computer program, generally we dissect it and break it down. Uh, I kind of work like that. Then we put it together and we start to apply it. This is what we're going to do here. By dissecting these offerings, then it can go back into and hopefully will become an amalgamation of a heightened worship perspective. The sweet-smelling savor offerings were the burnt offering, the meal offering, and the peace offering. Um, commentaries have stated, and that's uh, Brother Barling, H.P. Mansfield, um, Brother Roberts, that, as I said, this was not and would not be the order of presentation if one were uh, bringing his offerings before the tabernacle. Um, together, though, they do make a complete prophecy of the work of the Lord Jesus. No one offering would have accomplished all of that. The one that came closest to that was the burnt offering, which was used pre-mosaically. But in total, these are required to round out the various aspects of Christ's sacrifice. The sweet-smelling savor 
offering then was a product of the entire package. It was a product of the heart of the offerer, and of course it required fire, and it required a specific procedure and an animal free from blessing. Now, before the law of Moses, when uh, the sons of God began to call upon the name of the Lord, we know that the burnt offering was initiated early on. We can presume that that's what was the uh, offering once the skins were removed to cover Adam and Eve. But it soon became clear that this was the offering that was given throughout the early antediluvian times. The introduction of the burnt offering did not target specific sins other than to acknowledge that man now by nature was sinful and estranged from Yahweh and that to have fellowship with his creator, blood was to be offered as the medium of sanctification. The word burnt offering is rendered an offering that ascends. You know, Noah was saved from the destruction of the flood, and he took of every clean beast and every clean fowl and offered burnt offerings on the altar, we're told in Genesis 8. The test of Abraham's faith was to offer Isaac, and no specific sin was being targeted. The burnt offering was so all-encompassing that the sin offering and the trespass offering were not introduced specifically until the inception of the law of Moses. But it is probably this, for this reason that the burnt offering is listed first in Leviticus 1. Now, a point to remember is to be mindful of both the offering and the offerer here. You think of yourself as the one bringing your offering to the altar, but you want to also be thinking about what does this offering symbolize and represent? How was it fulfilled in the sacrifice of Jesus? And how do I amalgamate all of this into my own personal prayers and sojourn? Now, going to Romans 12, then, this is a familiar passage. It's a bit of a Rosetta Stone, and you can just go there if you wish for a minute. It's such a, it's such a big verse. It has so many uh, figurative ramifications to it. And... Uh, let me just get there. It's the presenting of our bodies as a living sacrifice. And it's, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good an acceptable and perfect will of God. Now you'll notice the words here um, that we'll be talking about, the presenting of our bodies. This word present means to stand beside, to be in the vicinity of, to be in covenant with. 
So the standing and the presenting of our bodies, and on the overhead we have a shadow, as if perhaps that is Christ that is in the vicinity of us and vice versa because of our relationship. So this is what's meant by that. We present ourselves, we come in contact with Christ. The Hebrew countertype is, you recall, the blood was always poured out at the base of the altar. For something to be efficacious, it had to be in contact with the altar. For us to benefit from the atoning work of Christ, we have to be and stay in his vicinity, do we not? The transforming here is a word that um, to be ye transformed is a word that is a biological word, is metamorphos or metamorpho, and it's the concept of a insect going through a larva stage, emerging as a transformed lovely butterfly. Um, it's an unseen change for us in contrast to that example. It's an internal change which takes place. Now, let me back up here just a minute. These key words that I want to address in this Romans 12, 1 and 2 are reasonable service, logikos, rational, logical is the interpretation. You see the root word Logos in there, something said, including the thought and topic. It's a subject of discourse, also reasoning, the mental faculty or motive, divine expression. Our reasonable service is the natural outcome of heeding the divine word of God. We discussed the word transformed, metamorpho, and it's a transforming. It refers to an invisible process in the Christian believers in contrast to its biological objective that we just mentioned that we see in nature. Mind is the in intellect, the intelligent processing mind, divine or human in thought, feeling, or will. Sacrifice the act of sacrifice or the victim of sacrifice. So when we see this word sacrifice, we can be thinking it's the offerer or it's the type, countertype of what was offered. Now, we also discussed this word um, present. It's rendered to stand beside and to be in the vicinity of. And so we discussed that, that it's important, like the blood was tied to the altar, Historically, we must remain tethered to Christ, our advocate. To the priest and the offering was placed on the altar the blood, and it was poured out at the base of the altar. And this has been fulfilled in Christ, who is our advocate, rendered paraclete, a Greek word which is a Greek legal term. It's like a court-appointed attorney. The word paraclete is one who represents another in the best possible light. 
So we picture Christ as being our advocate to our Heavenly Father, representing our prayers and petitions in the best possible light. He is the presenter, if you will. In 1 John 2, 1, And if any man who have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he is the propitiation of our sins. So we come into the proximity of the Christ altar through the act of baptism, do we not? Now, in Romans 12, 2, then, we have this transforming concept, which I had jumped ahead to. And again, in contrast to the biological change that metamorphose means, it's internal for us. Our external change will come at the Bema when one is blessed with the blessing of immortality. Paul in Romans 7.25 said, Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. That is always our struggle. Yahweh has not emphasized the concept, on the other hand, of free will throughout Scripture without driving home significant points, and you'll see that this impacts our study here as we get into Leviticus 1. God has always desired eager believers. Now, in Leviticus 1, where we'll go, and you might put your bookmark there if you wish, You'll notice in verse 2, Speak unto the children of Israel and say unto them, If any man of you bring an offering unto the Lord, you shall bring your offering of the cattle, and so forth. You'll also notice in verse 3 of Leviticus 1, If his offering be a burnt sacrifice of the herd. This word, if, drives home the fact that some of these offerings were voluntary offerings. And... To participate in worshiping God, it has always been a voluntary option to draw nigh unto him or to push back. And we have witnessed this all across Christadelphia. There are those who choose to draw nigh, and there are those who choose to push back and to tread lightly. This, brethren, factors into the aroma of one's worship, and it's a critical thing to understand. It's logical that our present personality and attitudes will represent our personalities in the kingdom. Attitude is rendered affections, will, or prudent thinking. Now, we can go to Hebrews 10 now. (laughs) And there are some verses in there that we can take a look at. Verses 1, 5, 7, 12, and 16. And where I was going with that is you can see, For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make those who come to it perfect. Okay? We acknowledge that. Going to verse 5. 
Wherefore, when he cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldst not, but a body hast thou prepared me. Going to verse 7. Then shall I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me to do thy will, O God. Verse 12. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. And verse 16. This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their mind will I write them. So this, then, is what our study is all about, to put the laws and the precepts into our heart. And you'll notice, and you may have this considered in various memorial talks, verse 5 represents, The body hast thou prepared me. Christ came as prophesied in mortal flesh. He came as a living entity. He occupied space for three and a half years. He ratified the everlasting covenant, and he is a fulfiller of all that Yahweh had intended him to do in his sacrifice and in the fulfillment of the law of Moses. So we look at this and we know and we understand the atonement process that out of this process eventually there had to be a human who would qualify as a perfect sacrifice because eventually the, the efficacy, the atoning power of the law would have to come to an end. It was only a temporary look forward. Now, The altar offerings had to be free of blemish. And this, you recall, when the Passover lamb was to be scrutinized for the national sacrifice, it was scrutinized for four days. By the time that Christ had come on the scene, uh, according to Edersheim, the list of blemishes that the Jews had expanded it to were 72. So here you have worshippers pouring out of um, Asia Minor and the vicinity and trekking down to Jerusalem to keep the major offerings, sacrifices during the year, many of them bringing tethered animals, and the journey would be hard, and invariably they would have nicks and blemishes, kicks, bites, split hooves, whatever. But Regardless of that, there was no way that the Jewish offering would qualify for the scrutiny of the sacrificial system in the temple with 72 checklists to be sure that it was free of blemish. The bottom line is it was a moneymaker for the Jewish hierarchy because they then had to or got to sell and supply a lamb that would qualify. And this then is why Jesus, you can see, with such contempt, had scorned them, throwing over the money changers' tables and saying, You have made my father's house a den of thievery. Now let's turn up Deuteronomy 15.21 for just a minute. This is a big verse as well. And we're speaking about the, the definition of blemishes for just a minute. 
And you'll notice that um, we're told in 21, And if there be any blemish therein, as if it be lame or blind or have an ill blemish, thou shalt not sacrifice it unto the Lord thy God. So obviously, the foot, feet, limbs of an offering would be scrutinized, which is all figurative of the quality uh, of one's walk, is it not? The, the eye would be looked at to see if it was draining or infected, and the uh, rationale is it's representative of our uh, spiritual pers- perspectives. How do we view things? How does that mold our character and life? But this term, ill blemish, is such an interesting one to me. The word ill is from the Hebrew word raw, and it represents what's inside the heart or mind of an individual. Now, Jesus said, you recall in Mark 7, there is nothing from the outside of a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are the things that defile man. So here we have the definition of this Hebrew word from the lexicon. It was quite lengthy. Of inferior quality, evil thoughts or actions, malignant, noxious, injurious, hurtful, unpleasant, giving pain or causing unhappiness, fierce or wild, a wrong or moral deficiency, deadliness, unethical moral activity against other people, whether by speech or practice. Now, needless to say, when you bring your animal for sacrifice, you can't first analyze his psychological makeup, can you? (laughs) So this is clearly here for us. This is meant to be projected into any discerning believer who would make this synapse. The word depicts a very negative inner attitude toward God or man. This then is the ill-blemish portion of the summary here. Um, In summary on this today, we might just say, well, somebody has an attitude. But this is what we're really probably getting at. Um, This then is why we have the instructions in uh, our our, um, memorial reading that we frequently use, which is 1 Corinthians 11. So let me just read that here quickly. And now you can reflect upon this for just a minute, going to verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. So this would be going through our mind. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh judgment unto himself, not discerning the body. So, this is another tidbit we can factor into our understanding and into our worship. This is why I open up with the sin offering. The sin offering and the trespass offering were new under the law of Moses. 
and pre-mosaically we said the um, sin was covered within the apron of the burnt offering. Um, these offerings were not counted as a sweet savor offering, um, and most commentary would need to precede one's offering of a meal offering or a burnt offering with a sin or trespass offering. Um, this is logical, isn't it, in our prayer routine to praise or to petition Yahweh while knowingly harbors sins that need to be addressed is a compromise to one's quality of worship. Now, the sin offering and the trespass offering uh, were not to be minimized. Um, it's sin which Yahweh abhors. It's one of the pivotal um, portions of the Mosaic order to deal with sin, which has estranged man and his chosen people. So it's something that was constantly being driven home. Sin of commission estranged God and man. Now, sin means to miss the mark, simply, to miss the mark. So consequently, Paul could say in Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. He pressed toward the mark because he understood sin in his flesh, firstly, but he understood the sin that we so easily accumulate during our sojourn. Now, contrary to the voluntary option uh, of the three sweet savor offerings, um, the sin offering was mandatory. Mandatory. So there was no opting out of it. Um, especially once the sin had come to light and had been identified, um, it was expected to be dealt with. Clearly no atonement for sin could be made until the offender knew about it and he was not liable to incur the wrath of God for something he knew nothing of, thus exercising and showing Yahweh's mercy. But sin, once known, required immediate action. This offering made no provision for willful or presumptuous sin, but only for sins of ignorance, the sin offering. Um, it was God's mercy in the way that he treated this then. Thus, the offering was an offering of opportunity to right a wrong and to regain fellowship with God. And this is how we need to, brethren, look at the process of seeking forgiveness in our own worship. It needs to be looked at rather than a burdensome uh, chore or a big unpleasantry that we put off and put off and put off, it's an opportunity to unload this from our conscience. In this offering, the stature of the sinner determined the magnitude or value of the animal used. So here again, you can see how God weights sin. If the sinner were of the priestly order, he had to publicly confess his sin and he had to bring a bullock without blemish 
and the procedure then would be the same all the way through. Place his hand on the animal, confess his sin, offer his own personal prayer, slay the animal by cutting its throat. How many of you have cut an animal's throat yet? It would be a big soul-searching deal. And that was for the priest. Now, if it were a sin of the entire congregation, see, we're, we're ticking down in magnitude here of responsibility. That's how God looks at things. Now, if the entire congregation were guilty of a sin, representatives of the offending tribes would come forth and all put their hand on the animal <clears throat> before it was slain. Now, these two categories were weighed heavier than the other categories. The next two categories would be a ruler, and then lastly would be a commoner, which would be like you and I. And this then was weighted proportionally. So the phrase scripturally, to whom much is given, much is expected, applies all the way through. One's order of responsibility, um, uh, obviously, uh, Yahweh looks at differently than a fledgling in the truth, let's say. Um, the priestly order represents the whole structure of God's worship. Therefore, they bore their responsibility. And hence, you can recall in Ezekiel 44, the Levitical priesthood shall bear their shame and they shall not come near to me, said the prince, because they participated in all the whoredoms of historical Israel. Recall that. The, congrega the congregation represents his chosen nation. So if there was a sin involving the nation of Israel somehow, that then was also very serious. You have God's uh, divine designated priestly hierarchy engaged in sin. You have his chosen nation engaged in sin. This is weighted heavenly against a individual king or a commoner. Um, blood from the bullock of a sin offering for either a priest or representing sins of the congregation was brought into the holy place now and sprinkled seven times before the veil. Blood was also put on the horns of the altar of incense in the, most, in the holy place. The remainder was poured out at the base of the altar, the great altar of burnt sacrifice out in the courtyard. Um, no blood from a goat offered by a commoner or a king was taken into the holy place. It was poured out around the base of the great altar. No part of the bullock that was offered for the king and or the nation could have been could be eaten. Um, it couldn't be eaten by the priests later as food. The ashes of that carcass were taken outside the camp, but the meat of the goat that was allowed to be offered for a commoner um, was allowed to be eaten by priests in the court of the tabernacle. Now, according to Barling, the blood of the sin offering, which could be eaten, a goat, proceeded no further than the court, 
That division of the sanctuary typified Israel as seeking reconciliation or worshipers in faithful progress before Christ's ratifying sacrifice. The blood of the bullock taken into the holy place typified Israel, spiritual Israel, and it typified them enjoying fellowship with God as the blood was sprinkled seven times for divine completion, and it was uh, it was sprinkled seven times before the veil, and that veil was ultimately rent with Christ's sacrifice. This was then the appreciation of that when the sacrificial offering would have been completed in and through Christ. The blood was also placed on the horns of the incense of alder, alder incense, and it represents the prayers of saints in the future enjoying ready access to God. So this is consistent with the ashes of the bullock being taken outside the camp to be further burned. And this phrase, outside the camp, then needs to invoke figurative thinking. It teaches that although the blood of the bullock was taken into the holy place, which uh, typifies mortal fellowship with God, and it pointed toward an immortal future, future priesthood. The placing of that entire burnt offering outside the camp drove home the fact that the great ratifying sacrifice in Christ was above or a fulfiller of that present Mosaic system. Christ was above or a fulfiller of the Mosaic law. Thus, the sacrifice was taken to a clean place outside the camp, um, which also taught that there was going to be a new and future means of atonement. The ashes were taken there as well, and they were subject, if you look at Leviticus 4.12, to additional burning where the, that, where the consumption was, was rendered in total. The additional burning is a type, I feel, of our continual burning and offering ourselves as a living sacrifice all of our lives, smoldering on the Christ altar. This is the type, too, of the national burnt offering offered for the nation of Israel daily, a lamb in the morning, a lamb in the evening. The fire was never to go out, and it represents a continual simmering. Picture yourselves as a continual simmering living sacrifice, giving off presumably a sweet-smelling savor. Um, this double burning we can only wonder at. We do observe that the mortal Levitical order will bear their iniquity as referenced in Ezekiel 44. That also, I think, is a type, counter-type fulfillment of this in that the Levitical mortal order must undergo a double burning for the iniquities they participated in um, under the Old Testament. 
Yahweh's fire, among other things, is about judgment. And we'll talk about what fire means a little more third hour. Now, let's take a look at Hebrews 13 for just a second. And I'll read verse 10 to 14. We have an altar of which they have no right to eat who serve the tabernacle. For the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Wherefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Let us go forth, therefore, unto him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, like faithful Abraham. Now, this then also ushers in the concept of spiritual Israel. It's a new byproduct that's going to emerge from the worship outside the camp, figuratively, if you will, a fulfiller of the Mosaic order. Now, there's another observation, and this is that sin covering was not more available if one were a priest or a commoner. I don't want you to go there. But that institutional sin, institutional spiritual sin, always has a fringe or a gray area of participants and those committing sinfulness. Congregational sin is the same way. We need to look at that in this day and age amongst our ecclesias. The priest was not allowed to eat of the bullock that was offered for priestly sin or congregational sin under the influence that there were probably more involved that were exposed and that came to the surface. This has the same ramifications today. This is how God would look at sin. He obviously has a criteria and it's prioritized. This is why sin within, let's say, an ecclesia or a body of believers is a serious thing. In contrast, the flesh of the goat could be eaten by the priests as they were deemed safely removed from the transgressions of that individual. The issue is the magnitude of sin and the perceived responsibility of the sinner in God's eyes. In the Old Testament, we had the Levitical priesthood officiating for the people and tolerating or participating in their idolatry out in the groves and up on the hills, did they not? Imagine that. Officiating as a priest, participating in idolatrous worship out in the land. Um, this then is a serious thing that we need to be aware of. How about ecclesias, organizations, publications today who propagate or wink at false doctrine and behavior? Do they not need to be mindful of these principles? 
there is a day of reckoning and judgment that will take place outside the camp. Now, the burning of the fat from the inward parts was regarded as the Lord's delight. The altar food was regarded as the blood and the fat burned on the altar. This was called, in various references, God's food. It was a sweet savor unto him when it was burned. It represented the offerer's repentant energy and zeal, refocused upon the atonement made for sin and now accepted. So the individual would bring his offering. The priest would remove the fat, especially around the inner parts, fat there nourishing the organs. It represented the zeal of the worshiper. It represented also the atoned for zeal of that worshiper that he could, in hope, leave the sanctuary and go back to his routine and touch the ground running, and away he went in the service of God. Galatians 2.16 qualifies this. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, the law could never could cover for a time, but could not remove sin. So Jesus bore the sins in his own body on the tree. By laying their hands on the head of the animal about to be slain, the offerer acknowledged that it was their sin that brought about this animal's death. In figure, when we accept the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf, we acknowledge that our sins are necessitated have necessitated his death and that the Lord hath had laid upon him the iniquity of us all. To quote from Isaiah 53, 6. We have one last observation here. The sin offering emphasizes the guilt of the sin committed whereas the trespass offering emphasizes the specific injury to another. So, we'll factor into the trespass offering next. So the sin offering represents the guilt of sin committed. The trespass offering emphasizes a specific injury. So you can see how they complement each other. Now, when you look at the uh, trespass offering next in Leviticus, you'll notice that it has ten basic parts to it. Um, one, concealing of truth. Two, defilement. Three, swearing rashly. Four, dishonesty and holy things. Five, ignorance, failure and trust. Seven, one-sided bargaining. Eight, taking by violence. Nine, false pretenses. Ten, stealing by finding. So this then specified to the large part interrelationship transgressions, romping on brethren, and um, also figuratively stepping on the toes of Yahweh. Trespass is rendered to be guilty, guilty of faults. The trespass then of concealing the truth, referenced in Leviticus 5.1, is perhaps the voice of swearing um, which relates to giving of evidence in a law court. 
So it was an admonition against relationships of legal matters. Withholding of evidence was a sin. A negative example of this was regarding Jesus, you recall. When the Lord was accused before the high priest, false witnesses were brought in. They made all manner of charges and accusations against him, and he made no response. Then Caiaphas, you recall, became angry, and he exclaimed, I abjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. That's in Matthew 26, 63. Jesus now had to respond. Jesus had heard the voice of swearing and would have been a sinner had he still refused to answer. Jesus, therefore, knew the law and he was compelled to answer. But it was brief. Thou hast said. That qualified that exchange. The oath of Caiaphas was altogether illegal, compelling the Lord to condemn himself in the eyes of his judges. Nevertheless, by replying, Jesus remained sinless. Number two was defilement, Leviticus 5, 1 and 2. So this is obvious enough. If a man touched something that was unclean, he became guilty as soon as he became aware, aware of what he had done. And this then factors into our personal worship. We know if we have a lively conscience when we've done something that would make us figuratively unclean. We may thank God for a lively conscience because it's, it's a blessing to have this little inner sword gigging us periodically that helps us to stay attuned. Number three was swearing rashly. A man must not swear to do anything and not carry out his oath. Uh, this was true whether the thing he swore to do was either good or evil. How much easier it is to rationalize that, well, what I had said I would do really has uh, some rather bad ramifications. I don't have to do that. I don't have to do anything about it. We'll just let that go. It, it, it seems hard, maybe, to think like that. Nevertheless, an oath was an oath, and failure to keep it involved the need for a trespass offering. And we have this well-known example, don't we, the vow of Jephthah, which condemned his daughter to her perpetual virginity, but it had to be exercised. Had he not performed his vow, he would have been a sinner. And therefore, we can appreciate the words of wisdom of Christ. Swear not at all, but let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Thank you. <laughs>